welcome to the fifth episode in a series of podcasts for Lancashire Archives. To mark LGBTQ Plus History Month 2022, archivist Victoria McCann talks to Paul Fairweather, gay rights campaigner and project lead on the Burnley Hidden Histories project that led to the discovery of a historic meeting at Burnley Library, which was later made into a play. Also, Mike Jackson, who was a leading member of the Lesbian and Gay Men Support the Minors campaign group, whose story was made into a film called Pride in 2014. We started by talking about young people and politics and how things have changed since the 1970s and 80s. Please note, however, that the views and opinions expressed are those of the participants and not Lancashire County Council. I got invited to speak to the school climate uh, strike march in uh, about two years ago, I suppose now. And it was amazing. 150,000 people there, all school students. Yeah, that's active. That's that's committed. I mean, obviously, within the LGBT community, things are very different from Paul and I's youth because we have achieved so much. So then we were literally fighting for our lives, fighting for custody of our children, fighting for the right to have sex. You name it, you know, we had no rights whatsoever. We were decriminalised after the 1967 Sexual Offences Act, but that didn't mean the difference between being legal and decriminalised. That sums it up, really, because we were decriminalised, but we had no legal rights whatsoever. And the bizarre thing about that 1967 Act is that criminal prosecutions against gay, gay men quadrupled following that act. So the myth is mm-hmm. that the act, well, it's not a myth, it's true that the act did make homosexuality no longer illegal, but then we had an introduction of a new law called uh, gross indecency, and the bigotry of the police and the courts was such that uh, there was a huge increase in prosecutions against gay men. So, And the police did all kinds of illegal things, like setting pretty policemen in plain clothes, you know, torn jeans and leather jackets to go into public toilets where gay men hung out for sexual liaisons because there wasn't anywhere else to go. We didn't have gay bars and clubs in a lot of towns. And they just went in there to entrap them. So, yeah, I think young people are just as political. And as Paul just said then, this this plaque that, that they put up in Burnley, 50 young people turned up to it and they just didn't know. And, and that's the problem. I mean, they don't, I don't think they're less political, but they just don't know about stuff that happened 50 years ago. It's, it's almost too near in history. And when you tell them, they're fascinated and interested and, and concerned. We were all kind of worried that kind of once we pop our clogs, as, as they say in Lancashire, any knowledge about lesbians and gay sport in the minors and our, our political activities would have been lost forever. Because although I did deposit the archive of, of, of the group in the People's History Museum in Manchester, that's a bit chicken and egg, because if nobody knows about the history in the first place, well, how could they possibly go looking for it? And I seriously was of a mindset where I was thinking, well, you know, when I'm dead and gone and the rest of us are dead and gone, you know, 40 years ago now, perhaps one day some undergraduate or postgraduate will be doing a dissertation and blow some dust off this old file and go, oh, my God. Yeah. 
Uh, but fortunately, Stephen Beresford, the guy who wrote the script for Pride, the movie, came along and, and saved us from that. And it's a movie, so it's not a documentary. Not everything in, in the movie is, is factually correct. He got the spirit of what we did 100 percent. And the reality is about 70 percent. You know, 30 percent of it is, is dramatised. Yeah. And we have no problem with that. I mean, I was involved in a there's been export the minds group in Manchester. And again, there was very little record. We just did it because there was no like social media in a sense. There's was very little records of that. But I think it was incredibly powerful. And I remember being at the the Gay Pride March when the miners appeared. It was an amazing experience. And I think the whole powerful thing about film was incredibly powerful for people. And it remembers the people, you know, and Michael Recruci involved in that campaign. It had a big impact at the time on communities up and down the country, really. What um, what pits were you involved in in Manchester there? Can you remember? We did pits in West Horton in Wigan. I think we had like a similar relationship. It was on a smaller scale, but we went around the bars and the clubs and actually, again, got a really positive response from people, really, in the main. It was interesting how, you know, it's the first time we've done that with a sort of a political issue that wasn't LGBT issues, really. But Yeah. We do tend to talk about the lesbian and gay community and the mining communities as if they were completely separate universes and and of course that's not right I mean uh, uh, if, if you were involved up in Manchester you were probably more aware than I was because our group was based in London that a lot of people came from mining communities I did there was a pit in my hometown when I was a little boy and they were still around places like Hapton and Burnley for, for many many years later so, you know, th- there isn't the gay community and the mining community. Yeah. Actually, there's often a lot of overlap. And whether it's gay men or lesbians or bisexual people or trans people, they would often say, my dad's a minor, my granddad was a minor, my uncle's a minor. It's not like the two it, different things. No. And that's why for us, we just naturally wanted to support the minors because we came from those kind of communities. What might be a bit puzzling for your younger generation is why would we do it expressly as an LGBT organisation? And that, and Paul will probably have something to add to this, that's because of the time it was really important for LGBT people to express themselves with confidence and openly together in, in, in solidarity with one another. Uh, a lot of us who were who were part of Lesbian and Gay Support the Miners also volunteered for London Lesbian and Gay Switchboard. And we were dealing with homophobia every day of our lives, quite routinely. But, of course, we were doing it together. And that's the difference. Do you know what I mean, that takes solidarity to a completely different level when you're doing it in an expression of your sexuality, an expression of, of, of your sense of community and belonging. And I'm sure it's just the same. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I was working on Lesbian and Gay Switchboard then and talking to people who were really isolated, but also beginning to get involved in both the Labour Party, Labour Campaign, Lesbian Gay Rights, and NALGO, and then unions and the trade unions. And it was very much that sense of you needed the self-organisation within the Labour movement, both the trade unions and the Labour Party, to get done, because there was some opposition. And I think we needed to have that solidarity as lesbians and gay men self-organising, which is really crucial. And I think, you know, it, it, that, that's not needed now. But in those days, there was opposition from people within the Labour movement. Absolutely. And, uh, we, we, we mustn't brush over that. 
you know, the Labour movement has had its fair share of sexism, homophobia and racism. Within our lived experience, that's true, Paul, isn't it? You've got to be aware of that. And a lot of people work very hard fighting kind of sexism, racism, homophobia within the movement. And now it's had a huge impact and it's drawn in lots more women. I think there are more women in the trade, trade union movement now than there are men, which is yeah. great. And there's a huge influx of, of LGBT people and, of course, the kind of people of colour uh, have a huge presence in the trade, trade union movement now. So it's actually gone from somewhere that wasn't necessarily a safe place at all to, mm. to being a, an institution that actually is a champion of equality, more, more than really anybody else's. I mean, the miners' strike was absolutely enormous. I mean, it, it absolutely divided Britain. We, we hadn't seen, in our lifetimes, we'd never seen anything like it. I mean, really, the only thing that was ever bigger than the mine, 84, 85 miners' strike was the general strike in 1926, and the, the miners in particular then. Like I say, it completely divided Britain. Uh, you're either pro-miner or against them. It was as simple as that. And obviously the miners were a huge part of the British workforce. I mean, at the beginning of the strike, there were 180,000 uh, miners went on strike. You then multiply that by the families or whatever, and then the communities that lived in the shops, etc., which would be threatened if this, the mine closed down. You're talking about really directly affected by pit closures, you know, possibly millions of people. And then, of course, all the rest of us who Thatcher came in in her second term of office on in the wake of the uh, war that she uh, chose to fight with Argentina to keep the Falkland or the Malvinas Islands. We kind of knew that this was not about uh, the economy, the economics of the coal industry. It, this was quite clearly about attacking the Britain's strongest union. And she, if she could defeat the miners, then she's won. And uh, we know this to be true because, in fact, seven or eight years before the miners' strike, there was a, a when the Tories were in a shadow cabinet when we had a Labour government, a shadow Tory minister called Nicholas Ridley was sent away to, to write a report, which was a strategy about what they would do when they got back, back into office. And uh, it's, it's quite freely available. You just look up the, the Ridley reports. And basically, all, all this was pre-planned years before it happened. Absolutely years. Yeah. The militarisation of the police force stopping benefits for striking miners, uh, stockpiling coal, avoiding using the railways to, to move coal and instead bring in private lorries, all absolutely pre-planned. So, you know, you were a bit naive, you thought this was about the economics of coal, because it wasn't. It was about destroying the trade union movement. If you were at all left-leaning, you just had to get behind the miners, do you know what I mean? Because if they lost, we're all up for it. And um, we've had 40 years of suffering as a result of that, yeah? Wages haven't gone up now for 10 years for, for, for lots, millions of workers in Britain. And that's a direct result of the attacks on the trade union movement. So, yeah, that's why we joined them. 
And we were, you know, when we were invited down to South Wales on those three visits we made, the first visit, we were a, a bit nervous. Um, they were coal miners. It's a rough, brutal job. You know, and But we were young. We were fairly tough. We, As I said earlier, we were used to kind of yeah. fighting homophobia every day of our lives. And what we'd learned by that is the vast majority, it was mainly men who were a problem. <laughs> That's another interview. <laughs> But what we found in 99% of cases, their prejudices would melt. They'd just, they'd just evaporate like that. Because the thing is, they'd never, ever met a proud, out gay person before. Yeah. You know, they'd met people who they thought might be gay, but that person was closeted for whatever reasons, often for very sensible reasons. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Whereas we were there, we were just absolutely out from the beginning. And what I love about kind of working class people often is is they don't shilly shally around. So basically that very first Saturday night as the beers were flowing, they wanted to know about us mm-hmm. and they wanted to know about sex mm-hmm. and what kind of sex we had and, and what does cottaging mean and, and so on. Because it was like, come on, we've been told that you're monsters. You're mm-hmm. here with us for the weekend. We know you're not monsters, but we don't know about you. So let's let's just get it all on the table and sorted. Yeah, so it, it was fantastic, really. Of course, the, the, that first visit, the, the, they found the, the miners' wives found that a lot of gay men liked dancing. Well, that was it. We, we were their favourite groups, really. Like The second time we went down, some of the miners' wives would say to us, oh, Come and sit with us, love. We don't want them boring bloody SWP people sitting with us talking about bloody politics all night. We're living <laughs> politics. <Yeah. laughs> and, you know, politics is both is deadly serious, but my God, you're doing it because you're fighting for a better world. Yeah. And it's really important sometimes to kind of keep that levity. Can't remember her name now, the uh, American anarchist, but she said, If I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and it spread round the coal fields really quickly. I mean, we were ever such a small group, you know, and we, we were supporting a very isolated small mining community in, in South Wales. But, you know, you think back to those times, this is before the internet, it's before mobile phones or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, The news, just like it is today, was useless because it was always from the government's point of view. If ever the cameras, television cameras, including the BBC, uh, were there, they were always behind the police lines, never behind the miners' lines. In terms of like the fact that there was such an impact on 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 the gay pride march, really, that was amazing. People recognize that didn't they that there's a huge support and yes yeah. similarities yeah. between us all rather than the differences and what paul and i remember and any lgbt activist our age remembers was the appalling attacks on the lgbt community by the conservative party and if there were LGBT, well, there were LGBT Tories around in those days, they didn't really tell you that because the Conservative Party did nothing whatsoever for gay rights. So they, they were actually there, the ones who criminalised us. So, you know, now today we have a, a thriving LGBT community, certainly in the big cities. People join all kinds of different political parties, in, including the Conservative Party. But lest we forget the Conservative Party have an appalling track record more than any other 
uh, political party in Britain of attacking gay people. That is the historical record of it, including their favourite darling, Margaret Thatcher, yeah. who thought it was wrong that people should feel that they have an inalienable right to be gay. Well, Maggie, we have. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember was involved in, we had the huge demonstration in Manchester in uh, 1988, which I was really involved in organising. And again, in a sense, for the first time, brought people, not only LGBT people, but brought trade unionists and Labour Party members and churches and community groups, a whole group of non-LGBT people. And, and, and in the 70s and early 80s, that was quite rare, really. It was quite rare to get those alliances because people just didn't want to be associated with lesbians and gay men. And that's a big change as well. I think the whole idea of allies and younger people, you know, be much more open to sort of all sorts of ideas. I think that's a huge change, really. I think that particular, that was a Section 28 demo, wasn't it? Yeah. I Do you know, I remember feeling that, uh, on that, that there were so many allies there rather than just LGBT people. I remember it, it had a real significance for me that, that so that's 1988. Yeah. I think we were on the change then. I, I really do think that heterosexual people realise that, you know, they can be and need to be allies yeah. of LGBT people. Yeah. And, you know, we're a minority, always have been, always will be. And so we need allies. And I do remember seeing the news coverage, you know, when they they, um, they took over the news studio at the BBC. Sue Lawley, wasn't it? And she was sort of um, <laughs> trying to kind of carry on, but becoming um, increasingly uncomfortable. And then you could just hear these chants of, um, you know, kill clause 28. And it was it was incredible. It was a really good moment. They also abseiled into the House of Commons. Um, or was it the Lords? Okay. I think it might have been the Lords, Lord, yeah. The Lord, yeah. They have sailed down off the balcony. I think that that level of direct. I mean, I was in, I came out in the early seventies in the tail end of the Gay Liberation Front, and that was very much what GLF did with Zaps, and also was very involved in Gay Activist Alliance in the later seventies. And again, we used to in Manchester like lobby and picket things, and I think that direct action is still really important. And I think it's important that you know you need to do other things in terms of lobbying and changing yeah. policies. But I think that direct expression of anger, it's really important still. I asked Paul to tell us a little bit about the history of the Gay Liberation Front. It started in 71, I mean Audrey, Audrey Walters and David Furback, I knew they wouldn't, they were in New York and they came back and started a meeting, I think in 71 at the, at the London School of Economics. And then very shortly, lots of people got involved in that. My friend Jeffrey Weeks, as a historian, went to those meetings. Peter Thatcher went to the early. Lots of people who went on to become key in the gay movement were involved in GLF. I mean, I didn't really, I came out at the tail end of GLF, but I remember going to the, uh, there was a series of squats in Brixton. I remember going to Railton Row, probably in 1975. And amazing characters were there, like lots of drag queens, and there were lots of activists. And they'd squatted a whole series of squats in Brixton. And again, they had a big impact in starting lots of campaigning activity, really. And uh, Jonathan Blake, who's yeah, featured yeah. In, in the movie Pride, he and his partner Nigel Young both were involved in LGSM and they live in one of those very places that uh, Paul's oh, talking yeah. about. They, there were two terrace streets, five houses on either side. And what they did once they got, they turned it into a housing cooperative. That's it. I spent a few months in one of the squats there as well. I mean, big, big improvements in some parts of the world. If you look at what's going on 
in Chechnya or in Poland or in Uganda, there's huge backlash against people. And yeah. I think that's the danger. And that's what we need to really focus on in terms of like, you know, having anti-LGBT zones in, in Poland and stuff. It's incredible. Or people still being criminalized or attacked. There's huge level of violence. And um, particularly against the trans community, the trans communities get a real level of stigma, oh, discrimination yeah. and violence. So I think there's lots to do both in this country, but also to have that worldwide solidarity, really. I think that's really important, solidarity across the world, really. But to be optimistic about that, you know, the, that younger generation, they're not having any of that nonsense. They, they realise it's just one planet that we live on. Yeah. Uh, they realise that things like racism stem from from finding its roots in in colonial history of European countries and imperialism. This again, to me, is why it is so important to to keep the historic record. And I've got quite an interesting quote by Richter Norton, mm, yeah. who wrote or gave a, a lecture called "Reflections on Gay History" in two thousand and eight. Uh, this really kind of resonated with me because, of course, the sort of records we have at Lancashire Archives, a lot of them are the criminal records. It's a history of homophobia, isn't it? And, and not a positive history or not even telling the story of, of people's lives. And um, he says, I'll just quote, uh, he says, the history of gay history shows up some of the difficulties of striking a balance between two different uses of gay history, one which celebrates the lives of lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people and is aimed at building pride among LGBT people and one which exposes the prejudices against LGBT people and is aimed at raising awareness among straight society at large. Post-67, in terms of the records, having archives like the um, LGSM and GLF and, you know, records of campaign campaigns, that evidence that rights have been hard fought for, yeah. that young people can look at and go back to and realise they're part of this continuity. I, th- I just think they're really really important and over the few years since we uh, got involved with the LGBT network group and outing the past events that we had at Lancashire Archives we've had some really good collections we've had campaign for homosexual equality for Lancaster and Morecambe and there was the first conference was in 1973 at Morecambe. And that's really interesting I was talking to Michael Steve we had a feedback after the meeting in Burnley and one he was talking about was maybe something happening in 2023 which was the 50th anniversary of the Morecambe conference which was a really crucial event and there's stuff that's going on and I know when I worked on the Burnley project it was like coming into the archive with some of volunteers going through the court records was fascinating we found some really interesting stories about not only men being arrested for gross indecency but a woman living as a man there was fascinating stuff that was completely hidden and I think that's true of everywhere you can go through and find those references to people still living their lives when it was completely illegal Paul, you you might know a bit more than I do about Alan Horsfall, who's a, yeah, a, a, a really he's not well known enough, really, no. uh, and certainly Lancashire should be very proud of him. Working class background and a, a real early pioneer for LGBT rights before CHE. Do, yeah. do, do you want to say a bit more on yeah, that? Yeah, no, I knew Alan. Well, I, I came to Manchester in 1978 to work for CHE, which was then the main gay rights organisation from the country, and I met Alan then. But he was also very much involved. Years later, there was a big case in Bolton, the Bolton Seven, where a group of people were actually arrested for like having sex in a group. And Alan was really involved. And that's, you know, well into his 80s, he was still campaigning. But he was a Labour councillor in Burnley. He was crucial in trying to set up the Esquire clubs. And the meeting in in, uh, Burnley was very much his case. And he was a really um, 
from a very working class background, but very shy, very unassuming. But just in the 1950s, for example, um, he led the, the northern branch of the campaign for homosexual law reform. And he was working in a mining village and he used his home address to actually produce thousands of leaflets when it was completely illegal. And actually he got a really, I remember him saying on the sort of semi-gay bars in Burnley, he got ignored by people because no one wanted to be associated with him because he was openly gay at the time and it was very dangerous to do so. I think he's a great figure. Like he has got more recognition now. I mean, the play we did, the Bernie Buggers Ball, you know, Alan was a key part of that, actually. So yeah. it was great that we were able to do that play. In '71, they were trying to set up a, what was basically like very much based on a working men's club. So it would be a social club, education, training, support. And they got agreement for the co-op hall in Hamilton Street in Burnley. They not told them what the meeting was for. When it was found out it was for a gay, a gay club, it was rejected. And it was a huge public meeting. A, a group of local Christian clergy organised a campaign and there was a big public meeting in Burnley Library in 1971. Um, a group came up from GLF, Andrew Lumsden, who went on to be very involved in gay news, was involved in GLF. A group of GLF people came up. There were local gay people there, and it was a really heated meeting. But it got a huge amount of publicity, national and locally, and it was a really significant time. And Ray Gosling, the broadcaster, was chairing the meeting, and he asked people at one point to stand up, and actually lots of people in the meeting stood up. And it's one of the first times that people publicly showed their, talked about their sexuality. So it was a very significant meeting and it had been forgotten about completely, really. I think the most moving thing for me about that meeting is the moment where, you know, one of these women with the kind of, you know, hairnets, horn-rimmed glasses, looked like the Mary Whitehouse type character actually uh, stood up and said, well, if we'd had a club like this, my son would still be alive. And, you know, I just think that is so powerful. I was growing, I was born in the 50s and growing up in the 60s, it was completely hidden. And I generally thought I was the only person in the world who'd ever felt like that. And there was absolutely nothing at school. And there's no one in public life. It was people like John Inman, Larry Grayson, who denied being gay. There were no openly public figures. There were no positive role models. And that has a huge impact when you're growing up. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we had no positive role models at all. There was no way you could go safely for information or go to meet people or whatever. So we were both muted and made invisible by the system. So incredibly oppressive, because it means to even protest, you put yourself at risk. And like I said, we were silenced as well, yeah. We were just ignored by the establishment and and by the media. At least if somebody attacks you, you can get angry back. There's a dialogue there. But this was worse than that, because actually we were just absolutely ignored we were an embarrassment to society and the irony is they were always so fascinated by the sexual act yeah. you know yeah. i'm 67 years old i'm afraid i don't have a big sexual kind of <laughs> life anymore but i'm just as much a gay man as i ever was i'm not i'm not defined as a gay man by the sex that i have it's just that politically you you, you have to assert your sexuality if you're from a a minority community like we are but I'm sure that Paul would agree with me in a revolutionary way I want one day for there not to be an LGBT identity because actually what we really want is things like this to be just so ordinary and everyday it's like having blue eyes or red hair or whatever it's just Who cares? Yeah. But we're unfortunately, we're quite away, away from that point. Yeah. 
it is that whole point, isn't it, of being, and I know it sort of seems simplistic, but it's that point of being, you know, we are human beings first. Everything else sort of comes afterwards. Dividing people is very, very, very useful to the people at the top of society. Mm. Tiny number of, of incredibly wealthy and it's so fact so powerful people just love to keep us divided and it's their job to do that because if they don't do that if if people are not constantly fomenting hate and division they've lost it because we all just turn and look at them and say it's your fault i mean there was um, a, a famous letter from the con i think they were called the conservative group for homosexual equality and it was leaked to us, and it's in the archive, actually, it was expressing concern about lesbians and gay support the minors, do you know what I mean? Because this said it would rock the boat. And there was always this kind of mealy-mouthed group of people as well, not just the gay Tories, but the others as well, who, who were all, all kind of concerned that we don't rock the boat too much. So you've got to be nice and, and kind of just ask people to be nice to you it doesn't work like that you actually have to be bolshy sometimes yeah. and you to, Paul said earlier you've got to occupy and you've got to scream yeah. and shout because yeah. that's the only time that you'll really get listened to they're not going to you know you can't just say to them, please be nice to us because <laughs> <laughs> they're not <laughs> you've got to assert yourself and say you will listen to us yeah we yeah have our rights and we are going to take those rights and you're not you're not going to bless those rights upon us nobody's ever ever given anybody rights you get your rights by fighting for them and demanding them at lancashire archives we try to ensure that the historic records in our care reflect all communities in lancashire including lgbtq plus if you have any records that you would like to deposit, please visit our website at www.lancashire.gov.uk for further details of how to contact us. <laughs>